does your organisation look like the people it serves? If it doesn't, are you legitimate? Are you trusted? Are you able to do what your mission says you're able to do? Welcome to the Be Change Podcast. We're your hosts, Warren Goldstein-Gelb. And Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and about how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. Julian Ajaman, our guest today, is a professor of urban and environmental policy and planning at Tufts University. In addition to teaching and research, he has consulted and served on the boards of numerous nonprofit and community-based organizations. His central focus is on what he calls just sustainabilities, the connection between social justice and environmental sustainability, which we will be discussing today in more detail. Welcome, Julian. Thanks, Warren. Thanks, Mercy. Can you share your story on how you came to do this work? Yeah, certainly can. I, um, I've always been interested in the environment. As a kid, I remember being fascinated by, by nature and um, culminated really in the late 60s when somebody got me a membership to the Royal Society of Protection of Birds. I remember getting the book, the, the little um, leaflet booklet that you got every month with ideas for bird watching and it just took me into a new world of ornithology, birds. And growing up as a kid, you know, I got myself a pair of second-hand binoculars and, yeah, just immersed myself in, in this world of bird watching and where I grew up in the east of England. You know, I had both sort of woodland habitats, I had great coastal habitats. I was an environmental studies kind of guy and went to university, did geography and botany. And then something happened after I'd done my degree. I taught high school geography for a while and I suddenly got interested in the urban environment. And I, I took a job in London working at an urban study centre. So this was like the urban equivalent of a field centre where kids from the local schools would go to look at the urban environment. And this was kind of revolutionary in many ways because both in the US and in the UK, we were busing kids out to nature, which was always somewhere else. It wasn't in the kids' environment. So this school really opened my eyes to a whole new way of learning, which was much more political because when you're looking at urban environmental issues, you're looking at decisions that somebody has made. Why that housing project looks the way it does, why there are less trees in certain neighbourhoods, why the buses don't run uh, as well as they should in certain places. So I really started to get into the social science of the environment, not just the natural science, but the social science. And really at that time, it was when I was starting to think about issues of social justice and environmental sustainability. And that's really how I got into the whole idea of sustainability. And it wasn't until after my PhD, when I came to the States and I was starting working at Tufts, that a group of us got together and started to think about why is it that the sustainability question is always about environmental sustainability. There was what we called an equity deficit in most sustainability thinking. 
an equity deficit. Nobody was talking about issues of equity and social justice. And in fact, even if we went out onto the streets of Somerville today and asked people what sustainability was, I bet you nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 would say, well, it's about the environment. And it is, but we could have a very green society, but if it were not socially just, would it be sustainable? Hence this idea of just sustainabilities. Sustainability to me, since the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, has become the main policy vehicle locally, nationally and internationally for policy and planning. Sustainable communities, uh, smart cities, sustainable cities, these are what we're all aiming for. How do we insert justice into that sustainability? Hence the word just sustainability. But what we realised is if we just said just sustainability in the singular, that sounds like there's one prescription. So we said just sustainabilities because we realised that in Bangalore, India, Birmingham, Alabama, Brighton, England, sustainability will look different. So we accept that there are maybe some principles of sustainability, but that the expression of sustainability is culturally related and that different places will interpret sustainability differently. So would you describe this as the through line of your work these days or is there more that you are working on? Just Sustainability is the platform that I operate from, if you like. Uh, It's my operating system. (laughs) And let me just explain Just Sustainability is about improving people's quality of life now and into the future in a just and equitable manner while living within the limits of ecosystems. So there's four conditions really, quality of life and well-being, inter and intra-generational equity, justice and equity in terms of recognition, process, procedure and outcome, and the need to live within environmental limits. Now, all of the work that I do starts from that platform, whether it's work in food justice, whether it's work in urban design and the design of spaces that are culturally inclusive or not culturally exclusive, whether it's my work on sharing cities, my work on immigrants and food, which is my my latest work, all of it takes as the platform and the underlying theoretical base the notion of just sustainabilities. Let's just take one example and describe some of the work that they've done, but also some of the challenges that they faced that you work with them to address. Yeah, my latest book is co-edited with an undergraduate student. And what we're trying to uncover are stories that are not being told. And so let's take my latest book, uh, The Immigrant Food Nexus, Borders labor and identity in the United States. The student and I wrote an op-ed, which was in the Boston Globe, really asking um, Bostonians, Americans, do you know what the implications of Trump's um, immigration policy are for your food? Because 50 to 75% of workers in the food chain, from the fields to the restaurants, are undocumented. What if we got rid of all undocumented workers? What would happen to food prices? Now, we made very clear in the op-ed, this isn't a good reason to keep people just because we want cheap food. But what we said was Trump's immigration policy opens up a window to look at 
our food system because immigrants and food are so tightly intertwined. And the stories that are coming out in this book are very, very interesting. We decided to do North America generally rather than just the US. And one of the stories coming out of Canada, and we thought that, you know, Canada has a multicultural policy, that Canada would be slightly more tolerant. But we found that the actual, the construction of the Canadian farmer in Ontario from one of the chapters is very much the white yeoman farmer who is taming the wild. There seem to be very little space for immigrant farmers, although there are lots and lots of immigrant farmers in Canada. In fact, in the greater Vancouver region, 20% of farmers are Chinese Canadians. Another interesting thing we found was that a lot of the progress that is being made in farming is due to Latinas. Down in the southwest in Arizona, we found food cooperatives that were being run by the women. The men were doing the work in the fields, but women were doing the organizing. They were the the brains behind the marketing system where they were gathering together as cooperatives to get a better price for the produce. So we, we we're finding all these interesting stories that really aren't being told. Another interesting story was in relation to how food is becoming really important to immigrants, especially in these days of xenophobia. Food is the umbilical link between where you're from and where you are now. It's almost an umbilical cord. And food stories travel by scraps of paper, recipes written on scraps of paper, and they are stories of both belonging and becoming. Belonging to an old land and what you can become in your new land. What the immigrant food nexus story told us was that that food isn't just something that is about nutrition. Food is about life. Food is about our very being. It's about love. It's about relationships. It's about culture. It's about identity. And so the book, I think, really contributes to, or for young leaders, I would say, you know, if you're working in food justice or food sovereignty or food security, never underestimate and never just think that food is simply about getting rid of food deserts. There are so many different stories in the the great food story that need to be uncovered. And one of my key contributions, I think, to both academic and activist debate is really to be able to give other people voices to tell the stories. And if anybody's interested, go to my website, urbanfoodstories.com, which is a, a website that we deliberately put together to allow people to send in their ideas their food stories and help us really build a big database of stories about urban food, especially from an immigrant perspective. I want to note that we will have on our show notes links to, for example, your 12 books um, and other resources that will be of interest to our listeners. So um, talk about the work you've done with some of the organizations you've worked with in in moving toward engaging in just sustainabilities. Well, um, one thing that is really becoming clear to me, and it has for a long time now, is does your organization look like the people it serves? 
If it doesn't, are you legitimate? Are you trusted? Are you able to do what your mission says you're able to do? And and I look at this from an urban planning perspective, but also from an environmental and just an organisational perspective. Does your organisation look at yourself in the mirror and say, does my organisation look like the people it's serving? Because a lot of organisations in environmental, food justice, urban planning and design, placemaking... They don't. And I'm working with a couple of organisations that are trying to look more like. And our model, I have to give a good shout out to DSNI, the Dudley Street Neighbourhood Initiative, who in the 1980s when they set up, they said, we're going to look like the community. And they did a demographic survey and still they constitute their board to represent the community. I think this is why DSNI has been so successful over the years with its community land trust, its urban farms, its affordable housing. It's an incredibly impactful organisation. Not just successful with outcomes, but also the inputs. And I want more people to see and go through that process of self-reflection and asking Do we look like the communities we serve? Because going forward, I think it's going to be much more difficult for these organisations to be trusted, be seen as legitimate in the communities of the future, which are going to be more diverse and different. I think second sort of level for me, and I think of this in urban planning and environmental and social justice campaigning, and we often go through our anti-racist training and we go through gender trainings, What about cultural competency? Now, in many ways, I don't like the phrase cultural competency. It's too managerial. And one of my students said, hey, Julian, you know, let's call it cultural humility. Absolutely, let's call it cultural humility. But whatever we call it, we know what we mean. We mean, how do we, as activists or professionals, how do we understand and interact with cultural difference and that cultural difference can be uh, sort of you know difference across religion ethnicity um, gender transgender all of the difference that we encounter in our cities today and will encounter even more in our cities of tomorrow so how do we develop the organization the learning organization that accepts cultural humility and accepts the need to understand the ways different cultures work. Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is, tell me if this is right, that leadership is becoming uh, more complex if you want to do a great job in terms of reflecting the community. You're absolutely right, Warren. Leadership is becoming more complex, more nuanced, I think more subtle. You know, I don't want to say in the past we could use blunt force, but... Today, we are, we're not dealing with a public. We are dealing with multiple publics. And how do we communicate across multiple publics? One thing that I think we do do, uh, and Marcy, you alluded to this, is we need to recreate a narrative around change. Um, You know, look, when I came to Boston in 99, and how Boston is seen around the world now... The Boston Red Sox, Cheers, it's still a very monolithic white Boston that is portrayed to the world. Somebody 
and I'm hoping there will be a mayor in the future, the not-too-distant future, who can reweave the narrative of Boston, this great multicultural city, this city that has benefited from these waves of immigrants. And in the last 20 years, I've noticed these changes, and we are getting more and more immigrants from more and more places around the world. We need a new narrative, a new story for Boston, and it's up to the leaders who are coming up in your neighborhoods, start creating that new narrative. As you've documented in your blog, for example, um, it's becoming more accepted that there has been a history of uh, documented racism in Boston and I'm sure other cities as well. And so the question becomes what skills and uh, approaches will new leaders need to weave a richer tapestry we just mentioned that leadership has become more complex. Um, in the past, maybe it was okay for leaders to speak on behalf of themselves. Uh, I remember sort of community development work in the 1980s in London. I was helping some um, largely white environmental organisations uh, in South London. And <laughs> their community development method was what I call take me to your leader. It was colonial take me to your leader, you know, I want to speak to the leader of your community and then we'll talk about uh, the importance of uh, wildflower meadows and everything will be fine. That's not how community development works. And it was proven that a lot of these so-called leaders of communities were men. Often they were maverick men. How do we weave a narrative when we're not really involving communities, we're just involving often self-styled leaders. Narratives are by their very nature, I think, a, a community effort. And leaders of the future need to really look at weaving these tapestries rather than a solo, doing a solo act. So we know that the environmental movement over time, many have expressed recognition that, gee, we need to diversify. But they haven't gone through the process that DSNI, as an example, has. Do you have any examples of working with an organization that has struggled with this and how you engaged with them to, to move in a, in a positive way? Yeah, I've got lots of examples. I don't want to mention names, so I'm going to draw from several bits of experience. Um, I've worked with a a white-founded organization that has become now multi, um, majority people of color on the board, not necessarily in terms of its employees. And there's a little tension there in that I believe in the way that they want to change from a majority sort of white board and a white founder board into an organization that really reflects local neighborhoods. There are all kinds of tensions. There are all kinds of tensions. Number one, it's a small organization. And so the staff turnover is pretty high because it's low security in the sense that uh, the organization relies on grants and a little bit of consulting. How do you get a diverse workforce in a, in a situation of precarity? And we, you know, I, I found this a long time ago in uh, when I first started out in the 80s in London, that a lot of the people who work for these precariously funded organizations often had a partner who was in a very well-funded job. And these were largely white middle-class people. 
and that if you were from a minority group and that you'd got a degree, a master's degree, you were largely being pushed into a well-paying or at least well-funded organisation. So we still haven't got over that. 30 years on, the the kind of the low-pay, precarious, non-profit syndrome, we need these jobs to be well-funded, pensionable, etc. I'm working with one organisation who are trying to change the the stories away from those very safe, um, feel-good stories to some slightly more edgy uh, stories. One project we're doing at the moment is on resilience. And a lot of stories about resiliency are about you know, individuals, uh, resiliency plans. Well, we've come up with a notion of collective resilience, which is a much more community-focused, how do we make the community more resilient than individuals within, within the community? And this has especially been focusing on places like Puerto Rico, where, you know, where recognising community coherence and community power has been very important in strategies for building resilience many interesting things you said, but one in particular is there's always this question of the sort of professionalization of social justice work and the sort of challenge of do you engage people from the community as the predominant leadership, uh, which means that they are not employed, that they're from the community, and or do you have professional staff that are well paid? And is that a contradiction? Yes, I mean that there is there are many contradictions, I think, many contradictions. You know, one way of thinking about this, and it came up a lot in my book on sharing cities, is the emerging idea of co-production, collaborative production, co-production. Um, there's a great example in uh, Pennsylvania that if you are discharged from Lehigh Regional Medical Center, having had one of a set of procedures, you won't be visited by a doctor or a nurse in follow-up. You'll be visited by somebody who's had the same procedure as you. Now, I'll let you guess which is most effective in recovery. Okay? Yes. It's much more effective <laughs> mm -hmm. if somebody else who's had the same procedure as you visits you. Why? Because they can empathise with you. They've had the same thing. And we're only much, very much at the beginning of, I think, a new economy around co-production. And in many ways in urban planning, we've skirted around this. We have had design charrettes. We've had, you know, engagement strategies. But I think this goes deeper uh, can I go back for a minute to, mm -hmm. to, to um, the, the example that you were giving about resilience? Because we've heard uh, different versions of that uh, before, where you take what normally would be associated as an individual strength and make it a community strength. Yeah. You know, I've long been thinking, you know, what is resilience? Is it just an urban design challenge? Is it a set of... Uh, learned traits that we can learn as human beings. So is it a more behavioural set of traits? And it might be both. Is resilience simply the absence of vulnerability? So if we get rid of vulnerabilities, are communities resilient? Or does resilience imply, you know, a whole new way of thinking about and a more proactive way of thinking about community safety, if you like? 
I had just one other okay. question which relates to the, the whole community charrette and the concept of fully engaging the community in actually kind of co-producing its vision is certainly one that I'm enamored with. And yet, in many cases, we have uh, municipality taking those steps and then ending up kind of doing what they intended to do. And, and I'm wondering, with, with up-and-coming leaders, how did they address that? It's a great question, Marcy, and, and, and I, like you, and uh, are, uh, I'm very skeptical about design charrettes. I mean, they are, they are icing on the cake in many ways. Um, what I've been looking at recently, and uh, I've been working with uh, a great group at the University of Sheffield in the UK, uh, who run a, a, a research an advocacy and practice group called the Transnational Outdoors Urban Research Group. They've been working with refugees in Sheffield, looking at how public spaces can be more welcoming to places, uh, to refugees and to immigrants. Can we design culturally inclusive spaces or should we just try to make spaces non-exclusive? And the thrust of their work, the theoretical or academic thrust, is the need for deep ethnographies. We need deep ethnographies of communities. We don't need these facile two-hour design charrettes. We really need to do the ethnographic work of looking at who the community is, its daily practices, its beliefs, um, you know, its hopes, its aspirations. And this could be co-produced. This can't be done without co-production. Yeah. We can't co-produce and uh, we sorry we can't just as academics just go and sit and spy on communities and do do ethnographic um, field work. So I can see um, university students. I can see community um, elders, youngers, um, community activists. I can see a whole range of people co-producing uh, community ethnographies. You know, imagine if the city of Cambridge said, we're going to have the year of community ethnographies where there's some deep research on the historical development of communities, on the changes, on the, the cultural groups that are present today, on some of the beliefs, the aspirations. This is a, more useful to an urban planner, I think, than two hours of a design charrette. And I think if it were co-produced, it would be and it would lead to much more um, of a desire I think to get involved in the co-production of neighborhoods and ideas about what neighborhoods can become I think urban planners are too obsessed with what we can become smart shareable sustainable healthy cities whereas we're really not thinking about as much the idea of belonging recognition reconciliation difference diversity inclusion these are all really important because Ultimately, what our cities can become will be a reflection of who gets to belong in our mm -hmm. cities. And I'm afraid at the moment we are excluding a lot of people physically from the city, whether they're homeless, uh, you know, ill-housed, uh, whether they're uh, immigrant groups, whether they're suffering from the displacement as a result of gentrification. So... Young leaders, think about both belonging and becoming, because both are very important in the future of our cities and our neighbourhoods. Well, how can people find out more about your work? 
Well, people can find out much more about my work by going on my website, which is julianagerman.com. Information about talks I'm giving, all my books, the uh, the academic papers I've written. Uh, there's a blog on there, but that's a, a little out of date. And if somebody uh, writes to me and says, hey, I'd like to blog with you on, on something, then I'm going to take you up on that. And it gives you my, my resume and the kind of things I'm interested in uh, through my biography. Great. Well, Julian Ajaman, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Warren Marcy, thanks very much. Thanks. Been very enjoyable. Great to have you, Julian. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media and Boston Free Radio.